Good morning, South Oaks Church. I'm so glad you're here. Today we start a new series on the book of Romans called The Gospel Revealed. And this will be our summer series. As you know, Romans is more than four chapters long. So we're going to try and take a chapter every week and uh, just see what God has for us in that. The occasion of the book of Romans being um, written by the Apostle Paul was that it was at the end of his third missionary journey. And the church in Rome was part Jewish Christians and part Gentile Christians. And there was some interesting dynamics about that church. Uh, Suetonius, who was an ancient historian, wrote about what had happened there, that the Emperor Clodius expelled all the Jews from Rome in AD 49. And he said it was because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of Crestus, which many people think that's Christ. And so you have Jews who were not followers of Christ riding with, against the Jews who were. And so there were these tensions that the emperor didn't like. And so to get rid of it, he just expelled them all from Rome. Well, he wouldn't have distinguished between who's actually causing the problem and who is a victim of the problem. He just thought he'd get rid of everybody. So the Jewish Christians had to leave also. And what happened to the church in Rome, it was made up of a combination of, of Gentiles and Jews. Um, you had the Gentile Christians that remained. And the church continued to grow. And so it became, because the Jewish Christians were not there anymore, it became less and less Jewish in how it did things. And then in, 19, in eight, uh, yeah, AD 54, not 1954, uh, AD 54, Claudius died, and the Jewish Christians began to return to Rome. So this is just like five years later or so. And when they came back, they found out that now in their church, they're a minority. They're not the main group there anymore. And so there got to be these tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles, and the church became kind of divided. So the purpose of the letter that Paul wrote to these Roman Christians was that they would better understand the gospel, especially as it related to their relationships between the Jews and the Gentiles, and, and the division that was there, and he's speaking gospel truth to them. Uh, it's especially timely for us today. It deals with some racial issues and how God wants us to see each other and how the gospel's not just for one group of people. There aren't like this big group that's the only ones and everybody else kind of like, you know, whatever. It's for everybody. And it was probably written by Paul. We find out later in the book of Romans that it was probably written while he was staying at Corinth in about A.D. 57. So that would have been about three years later after the Jewish Christians came back to this church in Rome, and so some trouble had been a brewing, and he decided he needed to write a letter to address it. And he wants to move on from Corinth. He says in the letter he wants to go on to Spain, and Spain is significant because at that time that's the furthest reach of the gospel in the world. And so he's saying, I need to go to Spain, and, and he said, okay, but I want to stop and visit you guys in Rome. I want to see you, but... I've got a first stop in Jerusalem. And why he needed to stop in Jerusalem was that was necessary for a discussion about the Gentiles, the Gentile Christians being integrated into that family of God. So why do you think, now those of you who are uh, new maybe don't know this, but we kind of, I'll ask you a group question from time to time and feel free to speak up and say what you think. Uh, we talk in church here. What, 
why would the discussion of Gentile believers be important? Why would Paul think he needed to go to Jerusalem and talk about Gentile believers before he went on? What do you think? He didn't want to cause further division with the Gentiles in Jerusalem or Rome. Okay, anything else? Actually, in Jerusalem is where kind of the, the um, key apostles were. And they had this big discussion. Other parts of the New Testament, we find out about it. They would come together and they would talk about you know, the Gentiles, should we let them in the church? And if they're in the church, in, in the body of Christ, what do they have to do? Do they have to do all these Jewish things that we do? Or, or what's really important? Because they didn't grow up doing this. Do we have them overcome this hurdle of having to do all these cultural things and become Jewish before they become followers of Christ? And as you know, they said no. There's three important things, and that's the important things they wanted them to do. And they... They didn't have them do all of their other stuff. And so before Paul goes to this place where the, probably the, some of the tension between these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians is like, well, do we have to do that? Well, who says we have to do that? And, you know, I didn't know about that. And so he's going first to get the big word from Peter and uh, John and whoever, James, and find out what is the key thing that they have to be doing. So then he goes on from there uh, in the letter and he says uh, the rest of the things that he wants to say to them before he would come and visit. It's a unique letter. Romans is a very unique letter. It's written almost like if you were a lawyer and you're presenting a case, an argument for the case of Christ, that's kind of how he writes it. He's clarifying the truth of the gospel, showing how it is revealed so this church in Rome and other churches too can understand the gospel and its implication for their lives and for our lives. So let's look at Romans 1. We're going to read the first part of the chapter together here, 1 through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times and I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. 
I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Okay. So at the beginning of this, Paul really identifies himself at a little more length than normal. And the reason he's doing that is because he didn't start this church. He didn't found this church. So he's laying out his credentials of why he would be writing this letter to them. And he says he's a servant of Jesus Christ and that he's called to be an apostle. He didn't just think of it. God called him to this. And he says he's set apart for the gospel of God. So what does set apart mean? What do you think? When I think of set apart, I, I think of above Paul. Set apart to me doesn't mean, you know, I couldn't get a job doing anything else, so I did this. It, it means I was called to this. And yeah. Set apart doesn't mean that you couldn't do anything else. It means you're called and you're set apart. You're, yeah. Any other thoughts? part of the definition of holiness? Yeah. It, it means, if you look at the original Greek, it means that it's set off by a boundary. It's, it's a limit, and it's appointed. And what that would mean is the boundary kind of idea here would be like, there's some things that I don't do anymore. There's some things that God has called me to, and he set me apart so I'm not part of this, this general population anymore. I'm called to this specific thing. I've been set apart. So the gospel of God, Paul says, is part of that process. And he said it was promised before prophets in the scriptures, and it's regarding his son, Jesus. And when we look at the word gospel in the Greek, the Greek word there is evangelizo. That's kind of a cool, same root word as evangelize. So to evangelize means to bring good news to people, means to bring good news. And, and if you know that that's what it means to evangelize, does that give you a better understanding then of what it means to share your faith? You're good newsing people, right? You're bringing the good news of the gospel to their situation. And especially today with what's going on in the world around us, they need good news. They need good news. They need to know what does the gospel of Jesus Christ have for me? So Paul tells them the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. That's the whole purpose of it from beginning to end, he says. And he says that Jesus is fully man and fully God. He says he's a descendant of David. And this wouldn't have meant so much to the Gentile Christians, but to the Jewish Christians this was important because this was prophesied in the Old Testament. And also he says that Jesus is declared with power to be the Son of God through the spirit of holiness and also by his resurrection from the dead. There's a power there in Jesus Christ. And these two things, the holiness and the resurrection, were important 
for us to know that Jesus is actually the Son of God. Because without it, without the holiness, and without the resurrection, he'd just have been a good man that lived. But Paul is saying, no, he is the Son of God. He's fully man, yes, but he's fully God. And we know that from his holiness and from the power of his resurrection. And then Paul says, you know what? I have received God's grace. And I've received grace because of who I was before I followed Jesus Christ. We find that in other letters of, of how he worked against Jesus Christ and what the followers of Christ were doing. And he said he had received that grace that allowed him now to come into the relationship with God through Jesus Christ and be a follower of Christ. And beyond that grace, he received apostleship. And he says the purpose of that is to call people to obedience and faith. And so what Paul is doing by saying this is my apostleship is to call people to obedience and faith, this is like the big 30,000 foot view of what it means to be an apostle. And yes, there's little things here and there that he does when he's ministering in these different places, but his ultimate goal, his ultimate purpose in life is to call people to obedience to the word of God and to faithfulness, to faith. And then Paul says, hey, you guys in Rome, you are also called to belong, to be loved by God. You're called to be saints. And that same word called there is the same word that he uses to talk about his own call to apostleship. So you and I are not just like living following Christ. We are called. We are called to something. We are called to belong to the family of God. We are called to be saints, called to live our lives in a way that honors and glorifies God. So if you're called to be a saint, now that you think about that, what difference would that make in your lives? What do you think? Might affect how we behave. Might affect how you behave, yeah. Anything else? Changes your choices. Yeah, for sure. Yes. A responsibility. Yeah. Being an example, setting a good course. Yes, this is this is right. If we're called to be a saint, just like Paul was called and set apart, do you not think that we are called and set apart? There's some things that we maybe could do before, but now that we're called to be followers of Christ, called to be part of the family, there's things that we don't do anymore. There's a way that we want to live that's like Paul lived a holy, righteous life. We want to be in that same category. We want to be set apart for God for a special purpose, to listen to what God is telling us. Because God wants to use us too, to evangelizo, to share the good news. He wants to use us to reach the world for Jesus Christ. Yes, we're maybe not apostles, but we are called to be part of the family of God and called to do the things that help others know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And then Paul says in verse 7, hey, grace and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a standard greeting. You'll see in all of his letters he uses that. Grace and peace. And that's something pretty cool. If he's saying, I want God's grace and God's peace on you, how awesome is that? We kind of need that in our lives, don't we? And Paul thanks God for them because their faith, he says, is being reported 
all over the world. Now, of course, this is all over the known world at the time. But they, they were being talked about in other churches. They were being talked about. And he says, I'm remembering you in my prayers. And I'm praying for you and for your witness. I'm praying that I can come and see you and that a way will open up that I can visit. And he says, there's three reasons why I want to come. The first is that I want to impart some spiritual gift to make you strong. See, when we're following Jesus Christ and we have that empowering, that filling of the Holy Spirit, there should be some gifts in our lives. And maybe he realized that these people needed someone to pray over them, that God would awaken that gift within them and use it for him. He doesn't specify which gift, but he says it's going to strengthen you. So if that's the case, how do you think spiritual gifts strengthen us? Yeah. Add something that we didn't have before so we could live a meaningful life. Yeah. Any other thoughts? I think gifts give us confidence to step out and allow God to use them. Yes. Good. God uh, gives us those gifts so it, we have a boldness and a confidence to step out and follow him and minister. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, and they encourage us because if I know that it's only up to me to do something and live the Christian life, I can look at me and get pretty discouraged. But if I know it's God's power in me, God's gifts in me that I get to use to follow him and do ministry and do the things that I am called to do, then I know, hey, thank you, God. It's not up to me. I can actually step out of the boat and follow you because your power is going to give me the ability to do what I need to do. So he says, the end result, oh, second, he's going to encourage them. They're going to be mutually encouraged. That's another reason why he wants to go. And then the third thing is that there'll be a harvest. He's saying when all of this happens, people are going to come to know Jesus Christ. People are going to come to follow him. Your witness in the community around you is going to draw people into Jesus Christ. And he's saying that his work there with them, he's praying it'll have those same positive results that it's had in other places, other, other churches, calling people to obedience to God and to faith. And then he lists this group of people, and he's saying it's not just to some but to all, to both Greeks and non-Greeks. And that, that thing there, Greeks were thought of as being like the really special people in that culture because they spoke Greek. And if you didn't speak Greek, the word there for non-Greeks in the um, Greek that he wrote this is barbaros. Now, does that sound like barbarian? Yeah, they said they called them barbaros because they thought that if they weren't speaking Greek, the language they were speaking sounded like bar, 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 right? And, and so they kind of looked down on people who were not speaking Greek. And Paul says, hey, the gospel's for everybody. It's for Greeks and for Barbaros, for non-Greeks. It doesn't really matter. Uh, wise and foolish, the gospel's for everybody. And it shows that Paul is saying there's not any distinctions. God is saying there's no distinctions between us about who can come to Jesus Christ and follow him, who God can use, and who 
you know, is available for stuff. It's, it's up to us by accepting what God has for us. There's no difference at the foot of the cross between us. Any race, any creed, anybody, no matter how wealthy or poor, rich, famous, whatever, Greek or non-Greek, we come before the cross the same. And God can save us in the same way and use us powerfully if we will surrender our life to him. So he's eager, Paul says. I'm eager to share the gospel with you in Rome and preach the gospel. And then he says this statement that is the key verse for this uh, series that we're looking at. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That's Romans 1.16. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It's the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. Not us, not our own stories, all those those are good, but it's the power of the word of God that's going to change people's lives. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile, he says. Okay, so did Paul mean that Jews are more important than the Gentiles by that? No. What he meant was that the message of the gospel was first given to the Jews, and then it was to go out to the rest of the world. It had to do with a sequence of time, not of importance. And Paul shares that the gospel is that power that touches people's hearts and draws them to God. And then he says, in the gospel, there's a righteousness of God revealed. A righteousness, in verse 17, of God is revealed, a righteousness by faith. So to be righteous in our living, he says, we have to live by faith. And then, not only is that righteousness of God revealed, but also the wrath of God. So let's read on from verse 18 through the end of the chapter. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in sinful desire of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, 
just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So this portion is presented kind of like a court case here. There's the evidence and the verdict. So he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness. And then he makes a comment that men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, men are suppressing the truth, people are suppressing the truth by their wickedness. So a group question here, how does wickedness suppress the truth? Does it? Oh, yeah. Sometimes it puts fear in the heart of people who know the truth and makes them not want to speak it anymore. It darkens their mind. It also makes it where if wickedness is suppressing the truth, then maybe it's saying wickedness is good and truth is not. Whatever it is, Paul says that the very things of these wicked things he lists are suppressing the truth of God in these people's lives. It's keeping them from understanding the truth of God. And um, suppress there in that Greek means to withhold. So it's withholding or keeping back righteousness, keeping back the things that God wants. So he says, here's the evidence of all of this. God has made it plain who he is. And he says, to him, there's invisible qualities of the created world. There's his eternal power. There's his divine nature that anyone who looks at the world and his creation should see it. It should be clearly seen and understood by the things that God made. And then he says, because of this, People are actually without excuse. There's no defense of not knowing there's a God by, not, by seeing nature. There's no defense. And then he says people basically have chosen for themselves the consequences. And he says even though men knew God, they're following this downward progression away. It starts out with, he says, they didn't glorify him. They didn't thank him. And then their thinking becomes futile, he says. It becomes wicked. And they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And their hearts became darkened, which means they became evil. They exchanged the glory of God, this glory of God that they had for these idols, these things, these corruptible images, these handmade things that look like birds and animals and people 
and they're worshiping these instead of the God who made the world. The God who made the world, the glory of God, instead of worshiping that, they're worshiping things of their own hands. And for us today, we can look at that and we go, well, you know, who, who has idols? Well, yes, but the principle there of worshiping the things of our own hands. That can be like, I love my job so much that I'm not worshiping God. Or I love my hobby so much. Or I want this so much. Or I want that so much. Really anything that stands between us and 100% worship of God, of our hearts, surrendered to him, that's an idol in our lives. That's something blocking us from totally worshiping God. So he says they're, you're, they're doing that. And then because of that, God gave them over to their sinful desires. There's sexual impurity. And he says that it dishonors and degrades their bodies. That is a sad thing. One of the saddest things about this sinful lifestyle that he's describing is that we devalue ourselves when we live like that. When we are outside of how God created us to live and we're following this downward progression of sin, it devalues us. God doesn't want you to be devalued. He sent Jesus Christ to save you from all of this and put you in a place of esteem with God, of value with God. He valued you so much. Don't devalue yourself by how you live in sin. He said, women and men abandon natural relations for unnatural ones. This is not the way God intended for us to live. They committed indecent acts and received in themselves the penalty for their perversion. And what he's talking about here is like what you reap, you will sow. In Galatians, it talks about that. And that's not God's way. Oh, yes, what you sow, you will reap. There you go. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Yeah, keep listening. Um, But God's word doesn't tell us to sow sin. His word tells us to sow righteousness. Hosea 10, 12 says, sow righteousness for yourself. That's what God's plan is for us, to reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. We have hearts that are not hearts of stone, like we were singing about. Not having a heart of stone, having a heart that we allow the Holy Spirit to plow up the ground of our heart. So, he, so the righteousness can be sowed in there, that God's love can be sown in there. Then he showers his righteousness on us. So on this downward spiral, spire of, of sin, it says that the people didn't think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They didn't think it was worthwhile because they don't see how it affects them because actually what has happened is they're moving farther and farther from the purposes of God and their actions and their decisions are showing it. And they've let all that stuff of God become something they don't care about. And so then Paul says, here's the verdict. God gave them over to their depraved minds to do what shouldn't be done. At some point, people move so far from God that God says, okay, I'm giving you over to your depraved mind because there's nothing more that he can do until that person comes to understand that's not right, 
This is not the right way to, to live. And then what happens is they become filled with all kinds of wickedness. Evil, greed, and depravity. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. And boy, do we see those attributes in our world today. And then he says something that maybe some of us kind of go, ouch. Gossips. Slanderers. God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. See, he doesn't just list one kind of sin. He's like saying everything in there that God does not like in our lives. All of that's part of that sinful behavior, and you don't want to be doing that. Inventing ways of doing evil, disobeying their parents, senseless, faithless, ruthless. This is a sad, sad outcome that started with not honoring God and glorifying and thanking him. And then he says, not only do these people know God's righteous decree, there's something within them that they know what they're doing is not right. And they know that those who do them deserve death. Yet, they not only do those things, but they give approval to others who do it. It's kind of like, if I say you're okay, then you can say I'm okay and we can both live sinful. That's kind of what's going on. I can say, yeah, that's okay for you to sin like that, and then you can tell me I'm okay to sin like this. And so what we've got is a world that has become, when they're at this point, they become where anything I say goes, goes. There's a Jewish proverb that says, the two-faced are doubly punished because they both practice evil and approve of others who practice it. They initiate the spirit of error and join in the struggle against mankind. So this kind of behavior is actually working against mankind. And this is what happens when people don't follow Jesus Christ. It's a list of so many things that are the result of not following him and moving further and further and further away from God. So what should your response be to this list and to others who fit this list? Well, Paul didn't tell them about this so they could go out and say, you're wrong, you're evil, you're bad. Did he? He told them this so they would see that it starts with things that are small. It starts with a small sin and grows to things that are so much worse. It begins with not honoring God and continues to things that are not honoring others as well and not honoring of ourselves. And so when we reject a relationship with God, what happens is there's a perversion of all of our other relationships. When we don't respond with honor and praise to the revelation of God, there is like our God-given faculties and talents become almost paralyzed. We can't become the people we were created to be by God. Our best abilities and creativity are therefore not available to us when we reject the truth of God, it affects our thinking. We're under the influence of the devil. We believe the lies of the enemy and not the truth of God. And we don't make good choices. And we fall further and further and further into that pit of sin. Paul wrote this letter to the Church of Rome, not so they could go around outside the church and hit people over the head with it and tell them how bad they were. He was warning them of what could happen if they allowed a little sin to continue to grow in their lives. 
If we allow the devil to control one area of our life, does he stop there? No, he does not. He continues to push us further and further into evil, further and further away. And we've even seen some of that during the last few months with people where they've allowed God to get in and, I mean, allowed the enemy to get in and mess with them and push them further and further away from God. And what he's saying is, don't do that. Don't allow this to happen. Look, this is the extreme of what can happen if you allow the enemy to mess with your mind and you refuse to accept the truth of God and you take what he is putting in your lives. So what do we do here? What was he telling them that they should do? How can we be sure that we're living in a way that we're not falling down this slippery slope of sin, as you've heard it called before? So how do we stop this endless drift from God? The first thing we want to do is glorify God with our lives. And what that means is we confess and repent of sin. We don't want that in our lives. We ask Jesus to be the Lord of our lives. If we follow him, that he is not just a buddy in a co-seat with us in the car. He is actually our Lord and Savior. We submit and surrender our life to him like we sang about in worship. And we ask him to fill us with his Holy Spirit, to impart the spiritual gifts to us that we need to follow him, to give us the strength that we need to follow him. We glorify God with our lives. And secondly, praise and thank him for all you have and all you are. If you know that God is the giver of all good things for you, if God is going to get you through things, you want to praise him for that. You want to thank him. Even like we said earlier, even in the middle of a trial, we thank him because we know even though I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear evil because he, the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ is with me. And then thirdly, look for ways to share the good news with others. We want to make sure that we are sharing the good news because people who are caught in this kind of living, we should feel compassion that they need to know the Lord God because they're under the power of the enemy. We want them to know about Jesus Christ. We want to share the good news that, hey, God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die and be resurrected so you don't have to live like that. God can save you from that and bring you into who you were actually created to be. So glorify God with your life. Praise and thank him and share the good news. Would you stand with me as we close today? I'd just like to ask you to just bow your heads and just take a moment Is there anything that you've allowed in your life? Is there a thing the devil is attacking you with and you've allowed that lie, a little space in your mind, a little space in your heart, and you know, I need to get rid of that. I need to repent to that. Um, I'm going to give that over to God today. If that's you, just raise your hand. Say, I'm giving that back to God. Okay, thank you. And maybe you're thinking, you know what, I've been really working hard at this Christian life thing, but I'm not tapping into what God has for me. I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit. I want God to fill me up with all the fullness of God, everything he has for me. If God wants me to have it, I want it. Just say, yep, I want to do that. I want to receive that today. Just raise your hand. Thank you. And maybe there's something 
that you realize, you know what, I, I need to start praising God more for what he's given me and thanking him. And if, the, if you think of something right now, just raise your hand and say, yep, yep, okay, thank you, Lord. So, dear God, we thank you that we can come to you. Lord God, thank you that you've saved us from all this. Just like the, the word of God talks about, you pull us out of a pit and set us on solid ground when we follow you, Lord God. And Lord, thank you that um, all of this progression away from you, Lord, we don't have to live like that. Lord, you've called us to be your ch children. You've called us to be saints. You've called us to be the body of Christ. Lord, help us to be set apart from all of this kind of nonsense of this sinful lifestyle. Lord God, I pray that we would not listen to the lies of the enemy. Lord, that we would follow you, that we would hear your voice speaking clearly to us, and we would do the things that we were created to do. Lord God, thank you that we have strength from the Holy Spirit to live that life to follow you, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we, Father, can make a difference in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. Lord God, that you would use us to draw other people that as we're mutually encouraged on Sunday, as we are strengthened by your word, Lord God, that there would be a harvest, that you would draw people into the body of Christ, that they would see that they need to follow you, Lord Jesus, by looking at our lives, by seeing that we are not living in fear, we're not living following the lie of the enemy, but we are set apart by you to live lives that honor and glorify you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for all you're going to do this week as we allow this word to get into who we are and marinate in us as we meditate on the word that we would live lives that honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.